I'm listening to some information from uh, webinars of the Country First Academy Learning Library. Thanks for 317k, even if it's just no enforcements. Okay, I was in the middle of this. And then shut off the podcast. Here uh, and staying out of the specifics of each of the municipalities and specific races, that you most places require you to pay some sort of nominal filing fee. So this is different than the in lieu fee. Uh, this can be anywhere from $25 up to $250, depending on the office and depending on the state. Not all states and not all offices require this. So do make sure when you take your papers out, uh, you talk to the clerk and you ask uh, what all of the requirements are for your specific office and your specific municipality. Um, and there'll also be some additional paperwork that you'll have to fill out here. Um, these are basic things, just verifying that you are you, uh, you are registered to vote, where you're registered, um, very basic things like that. Some states like California have a more robust uh, additional paperwork section. They're just planned to take about an hour uh, when you're submitting or picking up your signatures um, to make sure that you fill out all your paperwork correct. Uh, and, and remember, the clerks and election officials that you're picking this paperwork from or your signatures or picking them up or dropping them off from, um, their job is to help assist anyone who wants to run with a legal understanding of everything that's required. So, you know, don't be shy. Ask them uh, as you're filling out paperwork. Make sure that everything's filled out correctly and legally. Um, you know, don't feel don't feel afraid to kind of just check in with them every so often as you're filling things out uh, or collecting signatures. You don't have to turn them in all at once. I would suggest turning them in on a rolling basis. Um, and, and just build a relationship with these election officials. A lot of them are really good folks who are just trying to step up, um, serve their communities and do the right things. So, uh, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to them. We are also another source of information for all of these things and happy to help guide you through um, all the specifics for what your specific race and requirements are. <clears throat> so one of the really important things uh, that you have to answer uh, if you're looking to run for office is once you've selected an office, is this an open seat or is there an incumbent uh, who's running? So generally uh, open incumbent. seats are going to be easier uh, to run for. Uh, you know, they're, they're ones in which you'll have maybe more people running, but you're not running against the power of incumbency. <clears throat> when you do decide you're running, um, there are just a couple of things you want to think about here. A lot of times, if you're running uh, for an open seat, you can have a, if you have a relationship with a previous incumbent uh, and they are not somebody who um, is problematic, either from, you know, personal or office scandal or uh, having, you know, championed policies that are not conducive to who you are and what you want to do. Uh, you know, I, I talk to them, get some advice from them. Uh, a lot of times... Candidates will roll out endorsements, and these are former uh, office holders or current office holders uh, that 
essentially endorse you in the idea that you would be a, a advocate within whatever seat you are um, and a good person. Um, as you're running for local office, just take a, a long thought to the idea of endorsements and any that you're going to pursue. Um, anytime that you ask for an endorsement or somebody puts their endorsement on you, you are creating you know, a, a type of narrative about who you are as a person uh, and some of your beliefs and morals that uh, you're kind of allowing for so just keep that in mind as you're running for office here um you know it may not always be helpful to have endorsements um from former office holders especially down at the local level it's more important that you're running for you um than, than really looking for support from uh folks who don't know your community as well on the flip side of that uh, local community leaders are a great place to, to seek endorsements these can be anyone from faith leaders within the community, um, you know, to just folks that are well known uh, in the community as as good Samaritans, as people who do things that um, you know people are aware of or know. So, uh, definitely the idea that um, a faith leader or a leader within some, one of the Samaritans. civic organizations or groups or your local VFW um, or Kiwanis Club or Rotary Club or Keys Club. Um, you know, these are all people that are engaged in the local community. Maybe it's a small business owner um, who's really active in philanthropy. These are all the sort of people that uh, may be more helpful to you uh, to get and build a relationship with uh, and rolling out an endorsement from than potentially a former office holder. Just some things to think about here as you're deciding whether or not you want to run uh, and what your, your basis of support is. There is an incumbent um, you know, for these local races, you generally, uh, one, have to find out the incumbents running again. Uh, for some races and for some offices, um, there are term limits, meaning that uh, sometimes there's going to be open seats just based off the virtue of term limits. Uh, other times, somebody's going to say not to run for personal or professional uh, reasons. If you are running against an incumbent, um, there's really important things that you should kind of consider. Are you running because you want to do something differently? Um, are you, or is there a problem in your community that has not been solved? Have you tried to work with the incumbent previously on solving the problem? Um, you know, or is this a, a, re a reason you're running based off of your values and the difference in values that you hold and the incumbent holds? If yeah. you're running for a values or a policy difference opinion, um, that gives you really important narrative and understanding on how to build your campaign, how to talk to voters. It gives you people a motivation uh, and an explanation from who you are and why they should vote um, for or against you. So just make sure that you can answer those basic questions uh, as you're deciding to run. You know, what differentiates you from an incumbent who you're trying to take their job? Um, is it a values conversation? Is it a policy conversation or is it both? Um, be able to articulate that well. Uh, and a great place to kind of test run that is obviously when you're collecting signatures. Um, so again, just another reason that it's really important and really good uh, as you're deciding to run uh, to, to just talk to a lot of folks in the community and, and just get their thoughts on what's going on and how things are. Let's go ahead and kind of continue here. So something that's really important to understand, there are offices at the local level that are considered nonpartisan and then partisan. Uh, if you're running for a partisan office, uh, that means that on the ballot, there will be uh, a, a notifier of your registered party on the ballot. So if you're a registered Republican or you're a registered Democrat, 
uh, or a registered independent, you're running as a partisan. Uh, if you're running in a partisan race, there are some uh, basic, you start with a basis of support uh, in other uh, elected officials, um, you know, uh, within your local party structure. Um, if you are running and you do not have a relationship with your local party, uh, I was, if it's a partisan office, I would suggest going ahead um, and reaching out to them. Uh, you may not agree with your local party, uh, and if that's the case, you know, it, it's a courtesy, hi, my name is so-and-so, you know, I am running for, for this office, uh, I am doing it because I want to accomplish these things, and these are some of my core beliefs. Um, you know, it's not a horrible idea to introduce yourself. Um, if your local party is not one in which you wish to have a relationship with because they uh, do not uh, agree with some of the basis, basic premises of why you're running, um, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Uh, you know, you just continue to run the campaign that you can be proud of. Um, and you'll have to build a coalition and support uh, outside of that structure. If you're running for a nonpartisan race, um, do understand that a nonpartisan race is simply one in which on the ballot, it doesn't say Republican, Democrat, Independent, or any party next to your name. Uh, that does not necessarily mean that there aren't uh, partisan um, organizations, groups, and parties that are going to want to be engaged and spend in the race or on your on or against you. Um, so just know if you are running an armed partisan race, it does not mean that there will not be partisan conversations uh, within the election. So don't want anybody to get taken aback that they think they're running for a nonpartisan race and all of a sudden you're getting attacked uh, from one of the parties because um, you know you're of a different registered party. So just keep that in mind here as you're, you're building out and you're understanding what the local office is, whether it is or is not a partisan race. Um, one of the questions we get a lot, uh, and I'm, I think somebody may have asked this or was going to ask this here. Uh, so we we'll just want to kind of talk through this uh, up front. Um, if you want to run as somebody who is unaffiliated or independent, that's lowercase i independent. So in some states, being independent means you're not a member of a party you're not a member of the independent party. So just kind of differentiating that. Um, if you want to run as somebody who's, who's not affiliated with an office, it, it is a very difficult um, conversation uh, uh, to have a campaign in which, you know, you kind of don't start with a coalition of support. Um, at the local level, it, it is harder to run um, just in this way. Uh, it is more difficult generally to fundraise um, because if you are running, uh, even in a nonpartisan race, you know, the, the conversations around raising money, uh, you can start with your local elected officials who share you know, some of your, your party affiliation, um, or it gives people shorthand as you're asking for their vote uh, to start a conversation with them. They may not agree with you or you may not agree with them, um, you know, on some issues of the party, uh, whichever party that is, but at least it, it's a, a conversation starter. Um, it is very hard as independent to, to run in that you don't have a, a built-in infrastructure. So if you are trying to run, um, you know, I would suggest running if you're unaffiliated or independent in a nonpartisan race uh, and really trying to build, you know, who you are as a person um, outside of the party label is going to be important regardless of where you're running. So, you know, just, just keep that in mind um, that it is a lot more challenging to run. Uh, unaffiliated or independent. Um, so 
as you are making this decision, if you are not a registered person of any party, um, that's okay. Uh, just know that as you're starting to develop a narrative and who you are, um, you're really going to have to be able to probably spend a little more money on creating uh, a narrative about you as a person. So not bad, just you know, being aware of the challenges that each of these things kind of uh, occur. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and go on here. So when you're deciding to run for office, it's really important that you know uh, who your voters are, right? So whatever office you're running, how many people live in that area? This is a good indication of, you know, how much invo how involved uh, the voters are going to be in the area. So your jurisdictional population or your the population of the district that you're running in is going to be different than your voting population. So you can live somewhere um, and run for, say, a city council race in some of these major cities where there may be you know, 250,000 people who live in this jurisdiction uh, that your, your council seat encompasses. But there may only be you know, 50 to, or 40 to 50,000 people of the 250,000 that actually vote. So understanding um, you know, how big of a universe of voters that you're talking to is really important. Um, both from a budgeting perspective, uh, you're building out a budget on how to communicate to voters. You need to know generally how many people vote within that district. Um, and then the next kind of iteration of that is, is what the registered voters are by party affiliation. So if you are you know, a person that's running for a city council race you know, in a city that is overwhelmingly Democrat and you're a registered Republican, you know, that's really helpful to know um, kind of where you start the basis of a uh, partisan affiliation race. So these are all things that, depending on your state, depending on your locality, depending on your municipality, uh, you can publicly find um, most states on your Secretary of State's website. Uh, you can look up past election results. Uh, and so what you would do is you'd look up your past election results for the specific district you're in, um, and it'll, it'll break it down most states by how many voters um, registered by each party affiliation participated in that election. Just some things to think about is where in the calendar your election is. If it's uh, you know on the same date as a presidential primary and the presidential primary this year is going to be you know very packed with people, you may see a surge of officials um, you know uh, within your local party structure. Um, if you are running and you do not have a relationship with your local party, uh, I was if it's a partisan office, I would suggest going ahead um, and reaching out to them. Uh, you may not agree with your local party, uh, and uh, even in a nonpartisan race, you know the the conversations around raising money. Uh, you can start with your local elected officials who share you know some of your your party affiliation. Um, or it gives people shorthand as you're asking for their vote uh, to start a conversation with them. They may not agree with you or you may not agree with them, um, you know, on some issues of the party, uh, whichever party that is. But at least it, it's a, a conversation starter. Um, it is very hard as independent to, to run in that you don't have a, a built in infrastructure. So if you are trying to run, um, you know, I would suggest running. If you're unaffiliated or independent in a nonpartisan race uh, and really trying to build, you know, who you are as a person, 
um, outside of the party label is going to be important regardless of where you're running. So, you know, just, just keep that in mind um, that it is a lot more challenging to run uh, unaffiliated or independent. Um, so as you are making this decision, if you are not a registered person of any party, um, that's okay. Uh, just know that as you're starting to develop a narrative and who you are, um, you're really going to have to be able to probably spend a little more money on creating uh, a narrative about you as a person. So not bad, just, you know, being aware of the challenges that each of these things kind of uh, occur. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and go on here. So when you're deciding to run for office, it's really important that you know uh, who your voters are, right? So whatever office you're running, how many people live in that area? This is a good indication of, you know, how much invo how involved uh, the voters are going to be in the area. So your jurisdictional population or your population of the district that you're running in is going to be different than your voting population. So you can live somewhere um, and run for, say, a city council race in some of these major cities where there may be, you know, 250,000 people who live in this jurisdiction uh, that your, your council seat encompasses. But there may only be, you know, 50 to or 40 to 50,000 people of the 250,000 that actually vote. So understanding, um, you know, how big of a universe of voters that you're talking to is really important, um, both from a budgeting perspective, uh, you're building out a budget on how to communicate to voters. You need to know generally how many people vote within that district. Um, and then the next kind of iteration of that is, is what the registered voters are by party affiliation. So if you are, you know, a person that's running for a city council race, you know, in a city that is overwhelmingly Democrat and you're a registered Republican, you know, that's really helpful to know um, kind of where you start at the basis of a uh, partisan affiliation race. So these are all things that, depending on your state, depending on your locality, depending on your municipality, uh, you can publicly find um, most states on your Secretary of State's website. Uh, you can look up past election results. Uh, and so what you would do is you'd look up your past election results for the specific district you're in, um, and it will, it'll break it down in most states by how many voters um, registered by each party affiliation participated in that election. Just some things to think about is where in the calendar your election is. If it's, uh, you know, on the same date as a presidential primary and the presidential primary this year is going to be, you know, very packed with people, you may see a surge of people who are voting, right? So just be cognizant as you're looking at past patterns, um, you know, you know what election year your office is um, and, and what that corresponds with in the past with voter behavior and voter participation. Uh, also note that every 10 years with the census, uh, as we do redistricting, um, make sure that you're selecting the correct district. Um, so, you know, just, just keep an eye on that. Last thing I'll see, I will say kind of on the registered voters by party affiliation um, portion, uh, there may, in, in certain states, you have more registered independents or unaffiliated voters than you do by party affiliation. Really take a look at past electoral trends. Um, they don't dictate the future, of course, but um, you know, even if you have 60% of voters who are unaffiliated, but of those 60% of voters, 80% of them always vote red or always vote blue. 
Um, just know that just because somebody is unaffiliated or a registered independent, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a swing voter or there's somebody who is um, whose vote is kind of up to get. Uh, a lot of those folks are consistent voters of one party. At Country First Academy, uh, you know, our mission is to put country first and to break out of the mold of, you know, party politics. So we do want to always talk to those folks. We do think that most Americans, if given the opportunity and the correct information um, and the lowering of the political rhetoric, um, can have a decent and good conversation with folks running for local offices such as you. Uh, so don't be afraid to talk to them and engage them just as you're building information out and you're building a budget out. Just be aware of what the realistic numbers are for each of the different demographics um, that you have affiliations with or not. Okay, I think we can kind of jump off from there. So this is just, uh, you know, some basic information. We're trying to be cognizant of everyone's time here and not go too long. Um, hopefully this is helpful in helping you decide, um, you know, do I want to run for office? If so, what office? Uh, and just the very basic understanding of how and when and why. Um, after this, uh, we would ask if you would like to kind of continue with our webinar series or engaging with Country First Academy as an organization. Um, we'll want to send you a lesson two worksheet. Uh, this is going to be a way for us to get to know you a little better. Um, it's going to give you some opportunities to think through answers to a couple of questions. Very basic, very easy, won't take a lot of your time. Um, but it's just a way for all of us to kind of keep the conversation moving. Um, we will go ahead and send those out at the end of this week. So please take a take a look at your email um, and hopefully you can participate. Uh, and we're really looking forward to getting to know you. Um, it's really exciting to see, uh, you know, people like yourself uh, stepping up and doing good things for the country. If you have questions, um, there's an email right there. It's hello at countryfirstacademy.org. Um, let us know. Let us know you're excited. Let us know you're considering running, that you want to run. Um, you know, we're here to be a source of, of information for you. Uh, we're here to help guide you and help direct you um, to hopefully match your skill set and your enthusiasm and your passion for creating a better country to an office that makes sense. Um, so, Please reach out to us. Please keep us in the loop. Let us know how we can help. Um, and at, at the end of the day, you know, again, just thank you for everyone who's here and what you're doing. Um, we're all really excited. There's there's a lot of things going on across the country um, that people look around and, and just feel really upset or depressed or angry about. But at the end of the day, the way we can change those things are probably people like you stepping up, um, working to get elected at the local level, and helping bring this next generation of leaders up. Um, so again, thank you so much for that. Um, and I think we're going to kind of close here on uh, just some questions and answers. Oh, and, and yeah, if, if we can click back to that, Kayla. This is just kind of underlining everything, um, folks. You know, it really is uh, up to us to, to, to hold firm on just the common sense middle. Um, the folks that want to engage with people, your neighbors um, on the right and the left. And we think at the end of the day, uh, that as long as we all have, you know, correct information and we're running with good intentions uh, and with the idea that we're an upholder oath of office, um, every race at every level counts. So thank you again for stepping up. And I'm happy to kind of go from here to some questions and answers um, with an eye to the clock that we don't want to take too much time and that uh, you guys do have an email. You do have a way to get a hold of us. If you have specific questions, we're more than happy to talk to
talk through those. Thank you, Nick. That was an excellent overview um, to help us get started. I'm just going to read some questions that we had while uh, you were giving that wonderful presentation. The first one uh, is, how far in advance should I be collecting signatures? And this was asked when you were discussing um, petitions and signature gathering to get uh, your name on the ballot. Yeah, so again, uh, I'm going to keep these answers kind of broad, but uh, within your calendar that has all of your deadlines, uh, usually uh, counties and municipalities will release signatures and give you 30 days to collect signatures. So there'll be a date in which signatures are released. Um, once that date occurs, generally there's about 30 days you have to collect signatures. So you can't really collect them too far ahead of time. You have to wait until they're released. Um, and once they're released, you'll go down to your local election office um, and pick those up. So some states require you to sign them out. Some you have to bring an ID and you as a candidate have to sign them out. Some you can uh, sign an affidavit and have a representative of your campaign pick them up. And some states will let you print them off online. Uh, again, huge variance on states, elections, um, and municipalities. So just make sure that you give your clerk a call. These are all friendly folks who want people to run for office the correct way. Um, you know, go ahead and talk through with them any concerns you have, or uh, go ahead and reach out to us. We'll help direct you and help do a little research um, with you as well. Most things can be found online as far as um, what the technical requirements are and what the dates are. Uh, but again, with questions, email us. Uh, we'll absolutely be happy to help there. Wonderful. Thank you. And then we had another question. Um, this is going back to... Uh, deciding which office to run for, where can I find all this information, like all the offices in my community and whether or not they're partisan or nonpartisan? Yeah, so um, you can always start at your local um, city or town website. Um, that is kind of the basic place in which you can learn the structure of your local government. So maybe you've just moved there or maybe you just, you know, you haven't yet engaged at the city or the local uh, village or town level, if you go to that website, uh, what you should see is a blurb about how many elected city councilors or village councilors um, there are in your municipality, uh, as well as when they are elected. Uh, and then it will say uh, at the county website, so your county elections website or your city elections website, if you live in a city, um, it will say whether or not uh, the election is partisan or nonpartisan. So it'll say in parentheses next to it, generally um, next to the election. To the election, you can also take a look at any sample ballot. So if you have a previous ballot for the race um, or online, you can. Um, there's some good websites that we can make sure you have access to that you put your information in, you put your registered address, um, and it'll pull up a sample ballot for what your next election is. If you look on there and you look at the municipal races that you're looking to run for, uh, if there is an R or a D next to people's names, it is a partisan office. If there is nothing, it is a nonpartisan office. Um, so a lot of ways that you can kind of figure this out. Um, it's not, you know, it's not out there and easy, but just a, a couple of website clicks and you should be all right. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, the next one is, what do I do if my local party has suggested I not run? I believe I'm qualified, but they said there are others who are already interested and better suited. Huh. Good question. Absolutely. So this is a great question. And this this is very much uh, 
gets down to who we are as an organization uh, and what our beliefs are. You know, the belief that in American in American democratic system, every citizen has the right to run for office. Um, we are here to empower anybody who wants to run, uh, who is a good candidate because they share a value set with us that, uh, you know, value set being very specifically, they want to help strengthen democracy and they respect our institutions. Um, don't let uh, what, you know, a couple of folks say or do um, make the decision for you. At the end of the day, whether it's Democratic or the Republican, you know, town committee or county committee, these are a very small group, even if they're, they seem large, even if it's, you know, a county and it's 200 people, 200 very small voters. Um, you know, you're responsible for whatever office you're running to being a good representative of all your constituents. Um, and I would suggest, you know, you do the introductions to your, your local uh, county committees. Um, and from there, you just continue running. You continue talking to all of the normal voters who aren't out there, who aren't you know, making noise and complaining or making noise and trying to push people out of races. Um, just really get down and do the work. Talk to all of your constituents. Talk to the folks in your community um, and just put your head down and ignore them as difficult as that'll be. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we really believe that you are running for the correct reasons and we're here to support you. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, this one's a little uh, regionally specific. Um, so um, it will, I'll ask it as it is, but then maybe um, you can give a broader answer if, if you don't have a specific answer. I might run for a local school board in Pennsylvania. Is it true I can cross file and be on both parties' tickets? Yeah, so in some states and some races and in some instances you can. Um, I would double check before I say absolutely yes or no. Um, I do believe in Pennsylvania for local offices, you can cross file. So you can appear just like in New York um, as a member of multiple parties um, on the ballot. I'll leave it at that. Uh, and definitely you want to get some, some more specific guidance there. Uh, we're happy to kind of put you in contact with some folks in Pennsylvania um, who work with our organization. If that is something you're interested in, um, we do have on the on the ground staff uh, out there who are doing, uh, you know, the good work to ensure that people like you are, are um, able to run for office with the correct information. Thank you. And quickly, Nick, could you tell um, us what cross-filing is for people who may not know yeah, on so, this call? So some states um, use the term cross-filing to allow you to run for two or more local offices. And some states allow you to run for one office as a representative of multiple parties. Um, so you can run as a Democrat and a Republican on the school board, um, being your name is in the primary ballot of both of those. Um, and then in some states, it means you can run for a school board in a city council race. Um, so your name could appear twice on the ballot. Um, but again, those are very specific instances and very specific uh, states and elected offices. So do make sure that uh, before you, you you know run with that intention that you, you get uh, correct on the ground guidance and information on that. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, our next question is, what are some effective ways to reach out to voters in our area? Yeah, absolutely. So um, depending on how big the offices you're running for will kind of depend on the answer to that question. Um, the best and most effective way that you can do is create a campaign uh, fueled with volunteers and, and door knock. Um, voters far and away in today's 
day and age want interaction. Um, so if you as a candidate are able to knock on doors, that's the most effective means possible. Um, recruit volunteers, family, friends, coworkers, people from your local church, people from your local Kiwanis club, you know, members of whatever civic organization you're in, your local softball league. Anybody that can talk about you as a person um, is going to be much more powerful and an advocate um, to somebody who doesn't know you in your community than uh, a random person that you pay or, uh, you know, a Facebook digital ad. When you are going door to door, um, I would suggest that you have a palm card or a push card. Um, it's a pretty simple five by seven or, or kind of any size um, pamphlet or, or just one pager. Uh, that talks about who you are, what your background is, what office you're running for, when the election date is, and then a couple of things, you know, two to three things that you want to focus on if you're elected. Um, definitely have those. Definitely get your volunteers those. So as sort of knocking on doors, if they're not there, they can leave it. Um, or if somebody's there and wants more information, they can go ahead and do that. Just make sure on your palm card that you have the correct legal framework of paid for, um, you know, following whatever your local uh, requirements, legal requirements are. Uh, your campaign website, contact information, and when the election is. Those things are all very important for local offices that people may not know. Uh, some other ways you can talk to voters, um, you can do phone calls. Uh, so you can have volunteers, uh, you know, do phone calls. You can send text messages either through something like a texting party where all your family and friends come together and text their poll phone book um, of anybody who lives in the town. Um, or you can pay vendors that will send text messages on your behalf. Uh, you can also do Facebook advertising, um, radio ads, take out ads in newspapers. Um, you can buy um, yard signs. All those things are ways in which people talk to voters. But at the end of the day, the most effective uh, way that you can talk to voters by you as a candidate uh, meeting them where they are, whether that is campaigning um, at community events, the community fair, knocking on their door. Uh, this is the, the most important way and the cheapest way uh, and the most effective way that you can get out there and, and um, hear good feedback, learn what the problems are in the community and be able to address them. Wonderful. Thank you. And then our last question, how can someone without any political experience start building a campaign team? And I would also say um, in response to this question to watch for upcoming Country First Academy uh, lessons, um, but I'll throw it over to Nick for a brief answer for right now. Yeah, so it sounds like this person maybe has decided that they are running for office, and that's wonderful. And uh, we hope you reach out to us pretty immediately hereafter because, um, you know, the next steps as you have decided uh, when you do decide to run for office um, is you do so with support. You do so with some sort of support system, family, friends, um, you know, coworkers, whatever your professional network is. Um, once you have decided you're going to want to, depending on the office, um, have a group of volunteers who are going to support you. Uh, one thing that you absolutely need, uh, it's very difficult to kind of do on your own, is a treasurer. Um, this can be a person who volunteers. You don't have to pay a firm or pay a person to do it as long as they understand all of the legal and reporting requirements on how to um, be a political treasurer. Most states have um, free uh, lessons and learning that they can take. Uh, they can take a quick course so they learn and understand all the legal requirements. Um, and then outside of that, uh, you know, you really want to focus on spending your money on voter contact. Um, so that's, you know, making making palm cards, that's 
advertising, that's text messages, that's things like that. You don't want to have a super heavy um, paid staff. Um, as you, the offices get bigger and you're running for, for larger and larger offices, that's kind of a different conversation. The local level, it's really important um, that you recruit your family, you recruit your friends, you recruit the people who know you and believe in you um, and want to do something different. Um, you know, those are kind of the basis of, of your campaign team. So you'll want somebody that's going to take care of your volunteers. Uh, make sure that there's somebody who can drop off lit, who can help put up yard signs. Um, and then obviously somebody uh, who can go with you as a candidate uh, to events, making sure that, you know, uh, anybody who's interested in the campaign signs up, um, can get more information from the campaign, uh, kind of goes and walks around with you at fairs uh, and at any sort of speeches that you're giving. Awesome. And I just want to... Oh, go yeah, Sorry. reach out and reach out, and we're more than happy to kind of chat uh, more in depth on on some of the ways that you can help recruit. Yep, exactly. I just wanted to bold and underline what Nick had mentioned in the beginning that we at Country First Academy are someone who is here to be your thought partner and um, to always reach out to us as well in this process. Um, and that was the the last uh, question we had, Nick. Thank you so much. That was a wonderful um, yeah. introduction lesson on, on uh, how to think about running for office and how to make this very uh, important decision in uh, in our our lives. Um, do you have any closing remarks? If not, um, I just want to remind everyone that um, we will be emailing out this broadcast or this um, recording at the end of the week, along with a lesson to uh, worksheet for everyone to fill out and complete that will help you think through what you just learned here from Nick and help you put some framework around um, your making that decision to run for office. No, I, that, that's that's all I had on my end. And again, I just want to go out of my way to thank you. Uh, thank you guys for even considering stepping up and, and, and running for office. And, you know, our democracy will work or won't work, uh, depending on how many people of quality and moral fiber step up and want to do the right thing and work together to help solve these problems. So thanks again, reach out to us. We're here. We're happy. We're excited. Uh, and hopefully we get to uh, see some of you. Thanks guys. Thanks Nick. Bye everyone. Thank you for joining us today. All right. Uh, drawing, uh, once that date occurs, like cards, generally there's about 30 basically. days you have to collect signatures. So you can't really collect them too far ahead of time. You have to wait until they're released. Um, and once the they're released, in, you'll go down um, to your local election office. I was office. able to start, it's what's called an equal petition online. And I've been able to collect signatures. Sometimes you, you have to sign the statement of interest. And then you can start up the online petition to gather signatures. But I'm going to contact them and see if they could send me some um, petitions. Although they'll probably say, "Oh, you can you can just print them offline." But I'm gonna have them send some to me. And I had to wonder. I wonder if there's there's probably not a pay in lieu of fees, I mean, uh, signatures, but I'm going to ask about that, and uh, 
I didn't know I didn't know about this cross balloting thing. I wonder if I can run for sheriff and justice of the peace. That'd be fucking awesome. What if I win for both though? That's the question. But uh, no, I don't think I would. I think it would have. It would be a hard race for justice of the peace because the person, the woman who is currently the justice of the peace in my precinct. She's, she's been there for a while, and she's good. She seems like she's good, so. Although I would love to be a judge, elected judge. Um, if there's a good p candidate in that position, that's the same reason why I'm kind of backing off on the Senate right now, because Manuel Gallegos, um, he's, he's running, he's Kate Gallegos' husband, Phoenix mayor so we would have another power couple in Arizona and so I've and I've already told the Democratic Prima Democratic Party that I plan to run for Senate so I can kind of bash so I can bash Kirsten Cinema and then I'm going to uh, endorse Gallegos maybe he will I should contact him and tell him that. Contact Manuel. Manuel. Got some notes here. Manuel. Contact. On Andres Cano. And uh, yeah, a couple of other people in the state legislature. And Raul. I don't know. I wonder. I wonder how, you know, they get along with Chris Nanos because I'm running against the incumbent of Chris Nanos, who got fired or nearly fired by the Tucson City Council for his his uh, shitty job with the border issues. So um. Here are uh, some ideas I jotted down, okay, for endorsements to contact Tucson, um, Regina Romero, Regina Romero, I know, she probably has it good enough, um, relationship, or not, maybe not, you know do a little research on that see if they've had any sparks like just a you know enmity between them or whatever because the enemy of or the enemy of my enemy is my friend and uh, representative Raul Grijalva volunteered on his campaign Andres Canos in the state legislature I volunteered in his campaign there's a couple of other people too I volunteered or they like uh uh, yeah. Um, who are now in the state legislature? Who's what? When is a, um, on the bread? I want to say Stephanie something. And then, the, like, the recorder, I think. I think it's the first indigenous person, um, 
and I congratulated her. Anyway, so I would be, I'm going to be contacting the ACLU of Arizona, maybe the ACLU in general as well. Justice Democrats, Representative Jasmine Crockett, Rep. AOC, and Jared, and Bernie, and, uh, I don't know, I wonder if Pamela would talk to me, probably not. That kind of critical, little, I don't know, like, positive, give her constructive feedback, and she's that, from the sound of it, she sounds, sounds like she's listened to my feedback, she need, she needed some kind of press coaching. So she made a speech and it kind of fall fell flat or something, you know, not quite authentic. But and then I noticed she uh, she just had like uh, an interview recently where she she kind of nailed it. I think she's pretty good. And she was said to be getting a you know, some. Kind of vamping up her, her presentation skills, basically. That's what it comes down to. So, uh, no more deaths. That group, uh, the the Samaritans. Uh, yeah, I said that. Then the um, and then places to collect signatures. U of A. I'm thinking I could go there. Three or four times. She go there at least three or four times. There's several campuses, so maybe I could go, you know, each time spend like six hours, you know, have some, have like, uh, be nice to set up a, um, like a table. Okay, well, maybe I can set up this, this little plastic thingy. Ah. Uh. Bring a little chair. Ayo, motherfucker. Okay. Anyway, so different campuses of the U of A. Wow. There's the Pima campus, there's Des the Desert Vista, downtown. Um, Pima Community College. And then there's the libraries. Like downtown main one on, and the one on auto is pretty good. Then there's the res. They're going to help me gather signatures. Thank you, res fam. Love you too. And then the Justice Court. Those are the best places to gather signatures that I've found so far. Except for maybe the, uh, I don't know, Walmart. It's supposed to be really good. But, I don't know, it kind of sucks like hanging out in a fucking parking lot. I mean, like, they won't let you, you know, you have to be in the parking lot. It's kind of dodgy, you know? Like, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of on edge. I'm in this parking lot.
Uh, so yeah, can you contact Manuel, Andres Cano, Raul? Those are the things that I got out of that. So let's move on to the next one. This is uh, personal branding in social media. Covers building a personal engaging with supporters and voters, managing your online presence, including a Q&A sessions with an expert in campaign communications. After you're watching the webinar, complete this question will be guided through a series of questions which will help form your plans for the future. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Hi, I'm Riley Berg with the Country First Academy team, and we're really glad to have so many of you with us tonight. Um, awesome that you would take a bit of your evening uh, to spend with us. We really appreciate it. We'll be joined a little later by Maura Gillespie, who has spent her career in political communications and will be fielding your questions this evening. But let's see. Let's talk about what we're here to talk about, which is social media. Now, I'm not just talking about the viral videos and birthday posts that we see all the time. Social media is a big deal in politics, too. Why? Because it's where people are, and it's where you can reach voters, have real conversations, and show them what you're all about. So imagine you're chatting with a neighbor over the fence, but now that fence is the internet, and that one neighbor is actually thousands of people. That's what social media can do for you. It's how you tell your story what you believe in, what you're fighting for. It's not about fancy words or slogans or seeming real slick. It's about being the real you. And it's more than just talking, it's listening to. What do people care about? What do they want from their leaders? Social media lets you have those conversations, lets people into your life, lets you be part of their daily lives also. So we're here to figure out how you can use tools like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, there's a million more, and all those other apps, not just to post pictures of your dinner, but to really connect with people, inspire them, and hopefully earn their votes if you're deciding to run. So, ready to dive in? Let's get started. All right, I'll move us along. Let's talk about something called your brand. Don't worry, it's not as fancy as it sounds or as MBA-esque as it sounds. It's just a way to think about what you stand for and what you're all about. First, think about your core values. What really matters to you? Maybe it's honesty, fairness, helping those in need. Those values, whatever they are, like your North Star, guiding you in everything you do. Next up, it's what's your message? If you had to sum up what you're all about in a sentence or two, what would it be? Now, you don't have to know that right away or right now. But it's good to think about. It's a great exercise. Not and it'll actually be part of the exercise that follows time. this webinar. So if something comes to mind, though, go ahead and put it in the chat. We'd love to see it. And think of it like your personal slogan. It's not about catchy words. It's about the real you. If you're all about education, for instance, say it loud and clear. If you're fighting for health care or for our troops or for democracy, freedom, let people know. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. Stay with me. You've got to align all this with what your future constituents need. Those are the people you want to represent. What are their struggles? What are their dreams? You need to make sure your values and your message connect with them. 
you can't be all about saving the rainforest if the folks in your town are worried about jobs or where they're going to get their next meal or the plant closing. So to put it all together, know what matters to you, think about how to say it plainly, and make sure it's something that matters to the people you want to serve. Think of it like making a promise. You're telling people, here's who I am, here's what I believe in, and here's what I'll do to fight for you. And then you've got to keep the promise. So now we've figured out what you're all about, or you're on the road to figuring out what you're all about. And the next step, it's consistency, making sure that that's what people see, no matter where they may find you online. So let's start with pictures and words, which is really all social media is, right? Um, or including moving pictures. You know how you can recognize your favorite cereal box in the store, your favorite brand when you're walking down the aisle. Like you'd be able to spot Coke without reading Coke on it, or Pepsi, or Raisin Bran, whatever. That's what we're aiming for. Not for you to be recognizable in the supermarket necessarily, but for people to recognize your style of posting. If someone sees a post from you on Facebook or a tweet on Twitter, they should know it's you right away, or at least pretty quickly. So let's keep things simple and unified. Use the same profile picture across your different social media channels, the same colors, the same style. If you're all about community, maybe it's pictures of you with local folks, always smiling, always approachable. If you're about tough problems, maybe it's you looking serious, ready to get things done. And then there's what you say. Keep that consistent too. If you're all about education, for instance, make sure that's what you're always talking about or talking about most of the time. It doesn't have to be always, but um, share stories about local schools, retweet articles about education, policies, uh, post pictures from the classroom, anything that really connects with what you're trying to talk about and what you want people to see when they think of you online. And here's the big idea. Make sure it all fits together. That's what they call a cohesive content strategy. But don't let the fancy phrase put you off. All it means is that your post should tell a story, and it should be your story. It's not just random stuff. It's pieces of a puzzle that add up to you. Um, so whether it's Instagram or LinkedIn, make sure you look like you and sound like you, not like your idea of what a politician should be. It's like wearing your favorite outfit and speaking in your own voice. People will recognize you, trust you, and listen to what you have to say. So be yourself everywhere, every time. It's a good thing to remember, and it can be more and more difficult to remember that once you're in the thick of a campaign. So it's advice to hold on to. All right. Social media. And now let's talk about being real, which it seems funny media. to have a slide in a presentation. Personal branding and social media. Hi there, welcome back. We're listening to How to Run for Office. Presentation about this, first. but, you know, it can Academy. be difficult. And this is about um, this is session three, personal branding and social media. Politics. I'm talking about really being yourself online, which should sound easy, but sometimes it's a little trickier than it seems, and I want to break it down. First off, think about your friends, your family, people you chat with at the grocery store. How do you talk to them? What stories do you share? That's the you we want to see online. We're not looking for some polished politician who's all talk. 
We want the person who has had ups and downs, who knows what it's like to juggle work, family, and everything else life throws at you. Someone who's relatable to other, especially those that you're seeking to represent. So share those stories. Um, did you work a minimum wage job while you were going to night school or when you were you know, going to college or in high school for the summer? Did you help your community clean up the park? Those are experiences that tell people, give people a better window into who you are. And don't be afraid to show some of the not so perfect stuff. Uh, that you burn dinner because you're helping your kid with homework. Hey, that's pretty cool. Got rained on during a neighborhood walk or something like that. It happens to the best of us. It's relatable. So what we're talking about here is humanizing your online presence. It's not about being some untouchable figure, a Caesar. It's about being a neighbor, a friend, someone who knows what everyday life is like. And remember, it's not just about talking. It's also about listening. Respond to comments, ask questions, get involved in conversations. Show people you're not just broadcasting, you're actually engaging. And as an added bonus, it's also really good for your engagement scores, the algorithm. Um, people are much more likely to see your posts if more people are interacting with them. And that includes your interactions with them. So just an aside. So go ahead, post that picture from the local diner Share that story about your grandma's wisdom. Laugh about the time you got lost on the campaign trail or somewhere else. It's those real human moments that make people say, hey, this person gets me, or hey, this is a real person, since a lot of times we don't think of our political figures that way. So this is what it's all about. Being someone who gets it, who's been there, who's real, that's how you connect, and that's how you win hearts and minds. All right, friends, let's move on to something that's at the heart of all the social media stuff, and that is engaging with people. I'm talking about real conversations, not just tossing out posts and hoping someone catches them. Imagine you're at a small town meeting. Um, someone raises their hand. They ask a question. And what if you just ignored them? It doesn't look too good, does it? That would, that would be a deal breaker for a lot of people. Well, the same thing goes for online. If someone comments on your post or sends you a message, they're reaching out to you. It's like a virtual handshake, and it's polite to shake back. Respond to those comments and questions. Even a quick, thanks for your support, or great question, here's what I think, goes a long way. It shows you're there, you're listening, and you care, that you're accessible. Since, again, many people don't see their elected leaders or um, community leaders as accessible people unless they have a personal relationship with them. And since most people don't have a personal relationship, reaching you online is really the only way many of them will be able to do it. So don't just wait for people to come to you. Jump into the conversations happening in your community, which doesn't necessarily mean your wall. It can be a local Facebook group discussing the new park or a Twitter thread about the school budget. Get in there, share your thoughts, ask questions, be part of the conversation. Show that you're about solutions, show that you've got ideas and that you care, that you're in the mix. And the types of people who are in the mix in those forums are really great people to connect with because they're most likely to be the types of people who may do online or in-person advocacy for you. So now I know you're probably thinking, I'm busy. This sounds like it's going to take a lot of time. And, you know, ideally, when a campaign team, if you choose to run, gets built, there's someone who can help you with some of these things. 
But it's important to realize that the people, or most of the people at least, who are reaching out to you, they are busy too. And a few minutes here and there can make a big difference in how they perceive you and you know, their impression of you. So the key point is, it doesn't have to be about politics. You could talk about local sports, the weather, um, a new bakery in town that you tried and love. Just be a neighbor, be a friend. Being accessible doesn't mean you have to be online 24-7. It just means you have to be present, be real, and be part of the community that you want to represent. So next time you see a comment or a question, don't just scroll by. Stop, answer, engage. Um, it's like having a cup of coffee with a voter, only it's online. And you know what? Those little moments build trust, and trust is what you'll hear over and over again from those who win is what wins elections. So keep talking, keep listening, and you'll find that social media isn't just a tool. It's a community that you're a part of, and it can help you find many of the friends you don't even know you have yet that can be critical to your campaign success. All right. Next, we're going to talk about engaging your supporters. So you may already be doing some of this without realizing, but planning what you're going to say online is an important step in having a strategy that's going to work. So I know it sounds boring, but stick with me on this because it's not quite as dull as it sounds. So think about it like planning what you're going to wear for the week or what's for the dinner menu in your family for the week. Um, you wouldn't want to wear the same shirt every day or eat spaghetti seven nights a week, although I've had spaghetti I might want to eat seven nights a week. But for most people, that's not what they're looking for. So same goes for what you share online. So what's on the menu? Well, you want to mix things up. Talk about the issues that matter, sure, but also share some behind-the-scenes stuff, a little fun, some personal stories, maybe throw your family in a little bit. Here's what a content calendar, here's where a comment, sorry, a content calendar can come in handy. It's not a big scary spreadsheet, it's just a way to plan ahead. Maybe Mondays are for meeting the people, where you share conversations with constituents. Tuesdays could be policy time, where you dive into the big issues. And don't forget to throw in some fun. Share a throwback photo on a Thursday or a picture of your dog on a Friday. Show people you're not just a policy machine, that you're a real person. The trick is to find a balance. Too much serious stuff, and people might scroll right past you or hide you or unfollow you. And too much fluff, and they might not take you seriously. Regular, up regular updates show people you're active you're involved, and you've got stuff to say. But consistent doesn't mean constant. You don't have to post every hour just like you wouldn't call your friend every hour. That would be weird. <laughs> so grab a calendar, sketch out a plan, and keep it realistic. Hey, if you slip up and post two dog pictures in a row, don't sweat it. Nobody ever complained about too many dog pictures, right? <laughs> but remember, it's about connecting, being yourself, and keeping the conversation going. Plan ahead, but stay flexible. It's a dance, not a march, and you are leading the way. Now let's talk about all those different places online where you can hang out. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. They're like different rooms in a big house, and each one has its own vibe. So imagine you're at a party at said house, and in the living room, people are chatting about their jobs, swapping business cards. That's kind of like LinkedIn. 
You might talk about your policy ideas or your plan for boosting the local economy. Now, head on into the kitchen. People are sharing recipes, showing pictures of their kids or their latest vacation. And that might feel a lot more like Facebook. Um, here you might share stories about your family or post pictures from a community event. And then you can, might slide on over to the game room and you've got Twitter or the new threads, um, which is Instagram's basically copycat of Twitter. Um, it's fast, it's loud, lots of quick exchanges. It's a perfect place for sharing quick thoughts, news updates, or jumping into the trending conversations. And interestingly, um, Twitter, or X as it's now being called, is where many, many, many um, media outlets and reporters is their principal um, social media platform. So it's a great place to be even if you don't like it, if you're trying to get something in front of a reporter in your local area. And don't forget Instagram. It's more like the art room. It's uh, you know much more aesthetic than the other um, social media platforms. And like I said, like I said, everything's visual. Um, it could be snapshots of your day, beautiful images from around your district. Um, that's where those types of things go. So now why does this matter? Well, different folks hang out in different rooms. Younger crowds might be chilling on Instagram, while older voters are more likely to be on Facebook or, you know, in the kitchen. Um, and so you wouldn't wear a tuxedo to a beach party, so don't bring your LinkedIn talk to Instagram. It's important to meet your people where they are. So tailor your content, just like you dress for the occasion. Share what fits and feels natural. And you don't have to be everywhere. Pick the rooms where your people are and spend time there. You wouldn't run around a party trying to meet everyone. You'd hang out and have real conversations with the people that you connect with best. So get to know the rooms, feel the vibes, be yourself. Different platforms, different conversations, but always be you. That's the key, really. And once you find what works the best for you, I think you'll find that social media makes a lot more sense and that you'll get a lot better results from the different platforms you're on when there is some tailoring to, um, slight tailoring to your content based on that. All right, friends, let's dive into something that's a little bit like throwing a beach ball into a crowd and asking people to keep it in the air. I'm talking about getting folks to engage with your posts and share them with others so that they keep going, the algorithm keeps re rewarding them, and they spread to as many people as possible for free. So picture this, you're at a family gathering and you've got a great story to tell. You're not just going to whisper it to the person next to you, right? Well, actually, <laughs> sometimes it's fun to, to whisper those kinds of stories at family gatherings. Um, but let's just run with the original. You want everyone to hear the story, laugh, and maybe even tell it to their friends later. That's what social media is about when we talk about something um, being shared widely or, best of all, if it goes viral. You want to post stuff that people want to pass on, like a great joke or a heartfelt story. Now, how do you do that? Well, it's a lot of times it's by accident when things really go viral. But for things that just get shared really well, um, a great approach is to ask people what they're interested in. Simple as that. If you've got a post about improving local schools, end it with something like, if you agree, share this with your friends. That's what we call a call to action. You're inviting them to do something, but don't just ask for shares all the time. 
That's just like being a guy at a party who won't stop telling the same joke over and over. Mix it up. Ask questions. Ask for opinions. Ask for stories. Engage in two-way communication rather than just broadcasting what you believe. You may even find that there are issues really important to the community that, for whatever reason, you may not be fully aware of, that knowing through these channels and through these platforms really can give you an advantage um, in a run. So make sure that what you're doing is fun or meaningful, or both. Share a picture of a beautiful park in your town and ask, what's your favorite memory here? Or post a video of you trying to cook a local recipe and ask for tips. And don't be shy about sharing other people's stuff too. If someone in your community posts something great, pass it on. It's like giving them a high five and saying, hey, this is cool, I want other people to see it. But one point of caution here, be sure to fact check anything you share before posting and take a spin through that person's page for a little due diligence too, especially if you don't know them well. You may find it's not a person you necessarily want associated with your campaign, even if you may agree with one of their posts. Well, with that being said, sharing is still a great way to build relationships and get your own content shared. So it's worth doing, especially from a trusted source. So remember, it's not just about you talking. It's about getting a conversation going. Think of it like starting a campfire. You provide the spark, but everyone else keeps it going by adding their own fuel. Keep it real. Keep it interesting. And don't be afraid to ask people to join in. That's how you get your message to spread. One share, one comment, one conversation at a time. It's a team effort. And as your team grows, as more people are following you, as you attract more people, um, you know, having more people in the game and playing on your team, it's really a game changer. All right. So let's imagine you've got an engaged audience on Facebook. Everything is going great. But... Let's get real for a second. Not everyone's going to like what you say online, and nothing in social media stays great forever. Sometimes people might even spread stuff that's not true about you. It's like a game of telephone gone wrong. So what do you do when things get ugly or toxic? How do you handle criticism and fix misinformation without losing your cool and damaging your reputation? Well, let's start with criticism. You know that saying, you can't please everyone. Well, it's true. People will disagree, and that is okay. And when someone criticizes you, think of it like they've handed you a microphone. You've got the chance to respond and to explain your side. Just remember, keep it friendly. Arguing with someone online is like yelling at a traffic light. It won't change, and you'll just end up frustrated. So answer honestly, thank them for their opinion, and move on. Now, what about when someone says something about you that's just plain wrong. When misinformation comes your way, take a breath. Don't panic. Correct it, but keep it simple. If someone says you want to ban all cars, and that's not true, just reply with something like, hey there, I actually support better public transportation, not banning cars. Um, but thanks for letting me clear that up. And if it's something big, something that's spreading like wildfire, don't be afraid to make a full post about it. Think of it as holding a little press conference right on your phone, but, you know, fed to your social media. But here's the golden rule with any of this stuff. You've got to stay cool, stay kind, stay honest. These online storms pass, but how you handle them sticks around. 
Remember that you're not just talking to the person who's criticizing you or spreading misinformation. For all you know, it could be a bot that never is going to see your reply. You're talking to everyone who's watching. So show them that you're someone who can handle the heat without getting burned. Now let's talk about something a lot of us do or need to do, but rarely think about, or you know, maybe we think about it only when it's time, spring cleaning. But this isn't about cleaning out your garage, it's about tidying up your online world. Yes, we're diving into your current social media profiles where you may need to dust off some cobwebs and make sure that everything's looking good. Imagine your social media profiles as a collection of photographs that you've got on display in your living room. Over time, some of them might become a bit faded or out of place. Maybe there's one from a wild party 10 years ago or a comment you made that doesn't quite sound like you anymore. But when you're considering a run for office, you really have to take that metaphor out of your living room because you're not just inviting someone into your home. It's more like having a well-lit storefront on Main Street. Um, and that's because people can just walk by and look in. And what they see might make them decide to come in or just keep walking. Now imagine there's something in that window that doesn't quite fit. A random shoe among a display of delicious pastries. It's weird. It's distracting. It takes away from what you'd like them to be focused on. That's what we're going to tackle today, identifying and removing those random shoes, or what we like to call potential liabilities. First things first, identifying what's out of place. You've got to look at your living room or storefront or whatever works best for you in this metaphor with fresh eyes. Scroll through your posts, your pictures, your likes and comments, all of it. And think about it as if you're meeting someone for the first time. What impression are they getting from you? Do you appear to be someone who complains nonstop? Is your feed cluttered with secondhand memes and weird graphics that prompted you to share them? Anything that could be embarrassing or inappropriate if understood out of context by strangers who may just be beginning to follow you? Take an honest look, an honest inventory, and if you come across something that makes you cringe or might raise an eyebrow if it was on the front page of the newspaper, that's the potential liability. You don't need to panic. You just, like an old photo that's on the wall or a random shoe in the pastries, you can take it down and tuck it away. Now, removing those things doesn't mean you're hiding who you are. It's more like choosing the right outfit for the right occasion, as I said before. You wouldn't wear flip-flops to a job interview, at least not to most jobs. It sounds like it might be a fun job, actually. I'm wearing flip-flops right now for what it's worth. But same idea. You're making sure you're presenting the you that fits your goals. And hey, while you're at it, why not Google yourself? And no, it's not vain. It's smart. See what others see when they look you up. And also try it in what's called incognito mode. Um, since your search engine already knows who you are and might serve you up different content um, than what a random person sees, it's good to look both in your own Google search engine, but also open up an incognito browser window, which makes you a little more anonymous to Google. Um, but when you see these results, that, especially the first one or two pages, that's really your online reputation. And it's worth going a little deeper than one or two pages, because if you have opposition they're going to keep going um, deeper and deeper into your profile. 
So if there's something you don't like, you can often fix it by creating new positive content that pushes the other stuff down in the search results. Um, but remember, this isn't just a one-time deal. It's like keeping your house clean. You've got to do it regularly. Set a reminder on your phone maybe once a month to check your profiles and make sure everything's looking sharp. And a pro tip is ask a friend to take a look too. Um, it could either be a friend, family member, a volunteer on your campaign. Sometimes fresh eyes catch things that you might miss or might think are no big deal. So let's roll up the digital sleeves, stretch those fingertips, and start tidying things up. You're in charge of your online world, and a little spring cleaning can go a long way in making sure you shine just the way you want to. It's not about creating a fake you. It's not about hiding. It's about showing the best you, an authentic, real, and ready to make a difference. All right. Let's gather around the virtual campfire now and chat about something we all face every time we hit post on social media. And you know that moment, right? You've got something to say, your fingers hovering over the button, and you're thinking, should I really put this out there? Well, today we're going to tackle that question and talk about some guidelines for future posting. Think of it as a friendly reminder for your online journey. First, let's talk about the no-go zones, like those controversial topics that can be like stepping on a hornet's nest. Now, you might have strong opinions, and that's fine. But consider this. Is sharing that opinion on social media going to help or hinder your connection with folks? If you're running for office, it's about building bridges, not burning them. So maybe save the most fiery debates for face-to-face -face chats and keep your online space more friendly, open, and respectful. And speaking of respect, let's talk tone. Imagine you're at a town hall meeting. You wouldn't yell at someone or call them names, probably. I'd hope not, right? Even if you totally disagree. And while the online world often brings out the worst in people, and you'll find people freely typing something that they'd never say to your face, it's important for our leaders to be different. Keep it professional. Keep it kind. Model the type of behavior that we want to see in those who we seek to lead. It's like your grandma may have said, it's what my grandma said, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all, or at least try to say it nicely. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be boring and robotic. You can be passionate, inspiring, and fun. But just remember there's a real person on the other side of that screen. Talk to them like you would if you were sitting across the coffee table from them. Last but not least, let's make a pact to focus on the positive and be constructive. This is something that I wish we could force everyone on social media to do. It's easy to complain, right? That's all anyone's doing online. What will distinguish you is if you're offering solutions. So let's challenge ourselves to do just that. Share success stories and uplift others. That's the online space that people want to hang out in. And if it's not the kind of space they want to hang out in, then they're probably not people you want around you anyway. So here's the takeaway. Think before you post, keep it friendly, keep it respectful, and always aim to build up, not tear down. These aren't just rules for politicians. They're good rules for all of us. And let's make the online world a little better place, starting with us, especially any of you who are hoping to be leaders. And Country First Academy certainly hopes that um, any of you who choose to run will be leading the way in making us a more civil and better society. All right.
We're almost to our special guest, Maura, so just hang in there a few more minutes. Let's chat about something that's like the big league of social media and why many of you may be here, running for office. If you're thinking about throwing your hat in the ring, there's some stuff you've got to know about how social media plays into that. First off, social media is like a time machine. Anything you post, tweet, or share, it's there. Maybe not forever, but long enough that someone can dig it up. That silly dance you did, the rant about traffic, it's all there. So think about your posts as if they're sticky notes on a giant public bulletin board. When you're a candidate, people are going to look at that bulletin board. They're going to read every note or a lot of the notes. They want to know who you are and what you stand for. And yes, what you had for breakfast three days ago. People are interested in random things. I, I'm interested in random things. <laughs> so maybe not breakfast, but you can get the idea. So your social media isn't just your space anymore. It's like your front lawn. Everyone walking by can see it. And trust me, they're looking, they're judging. And here's another thing. Some people are going to dissect everything. It's like being a movie star, but without the fancy premieres. Every word you say, every picture you post, it's all under a microscope, at least by a certain subset of people. And that's just the name of the game when you're in the public eye. So what's a future candidate to do? Well, it's pretty simple. You just need to be aware, be thoughtful, and be yourself. Understand what you do online sticks around. Prepare for people to look at you with a magnifying glass. And most importantly, own it. Be proud of who you are and let that shine through. It's like going on a big stage. Sure, it's bright, and yes, it's a bit scary, but it's also your chance to show the world what you've got. Social media isn't something to be afraid of. It's a tool, a stage, a way to connect. Use it wisely, and it'll be a great friend on your journey to elected office. All right, so we're moving on now to our conclusion. So what have we talked about today? Let's break it down real quickly. We have talked about um, to make sure your online presence lines up with um, who you really are and what you stand for. We've talked about consistency, to use the same voice and look across platforms. We've talked about staying real, sharing your stories, your passion, who you really are. We've talked about engagement and how to talk to people and not at them. We've talked about planning ahead and thinking about what we want to say when we want to say it. We've talked about knowing your audience and how different folks hang out on different platforms and deciding which platforms are the best place for you to be to reach them. Um, we've talked about getting shared and how to encourage people to share what you say through calls to action. We've talked about handling crises and how to handle them with grace and to stay calm and to keep on posting. We've talked about cleaning up your current social media to make sure that you're showing your best self. We've talked about posting smart in the future um, to make sure that what you're saying and who's listening um, are congruent, and to be kind, to be smart, and to be yourself. And because no top 10 list would be complete without a number 11, if you are a candidate or thinking of being a candidate, remember you're stepping into the spotlight. Prepare for some close-ups, stay true to yourself, and you will be just fine. So last thing I'll say is social media is not a monster. Well, I'm not sure I believe that fully, but 
it's it's not a monster in turn of something that is not worth engaging that is not worth um is not worth utilizing as you run it's not a monster but it's also it's not a magic wand it's a tool a way to talk share and connect and it's up to you how you use it so go out there be active be responsible and most importantly try to have some fun with it and with that i'm thrilled to introduce a good friend who is here generously um, to share her expertise and answer any questions um, i'm just there she is this is maura gillespie and she is an established communications professional who built bridges between elected officials and their constituents co-founded the country first movement and is a recurring guest on national news outlets most recently maura served as the deputy chief of staff and communications director to congressman adam kinzinger um, in that role she was responsible for helping grow the audience of the congressman through social media and placing opinion pieces developing relationships national media outlets booking the congressman on tv she has done it all seen it all um, she is a pro and prior to that she worked as a press advisor to former speaker of the house john boehner in that role she gained lots of valuable experience um, and really was able to do um, many high-level jobs when the stakes were very high and was still able to maintain professionalism she has plenty of practice with all of that and finally before we cut into the q a she is a proud new jersey native and she has now ventured out and is the principal and founder of a great comms firm blue stack strategies where she helps people tell their own stories um, who are wishing to grow their businesses develop strategic communications plans all of that type of thing and she brings her political consulting experience and years of communications expertise with her tonight and we're very lucky to have her maura thank you for being here thanks for having me all right well we are um okay we've got some questions from the q a um maura how would you advise our candidates or prospective candidates um, on how to approach engaging with trending or hot topics that are in the news. If it will benefit your brand and is on kind of message with what you've already been talking about, then I say absolutely chime in um, and engage on that topic. But if it's something that you would never normally weigh in on, but just because it's popular right now or in the news, you don't need to be commenting on everything. Um, I think we found it with Congressman Kinzinger that if we try to keep up with you know, at the time, everything that Donald Trump was saying, that would have been a full-time job for us. So we had to really pick and choose. And so I find that to be the most uh, constructive way of, of navigating um, what's trending or what's breaking. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um, Carmen in the Q&A asked, is there an easy way to see my posts and comments from the past on Facebook? Um, Maura, I'm not sure if that is something that is easy to explain <laughs> without <laughs> having Facebook up, but yeah. I do I do believe if you click on your profile pic in the upper right-hand corner and select settings and privacy and then manage your Facebook activity, um, you can view and delete them there. Yeah, okay. you should be able to go back and see. Uh, and sometimes what I'll do, just to, you know, the topic of spring cleaning, Sometimes what I'll do is that day, go to my archive or, you know, like on this day, however many years ago, 
and kind of just check in on it, you know, and it'll show you what you posted four years ago on this day, seven years ago, depending on how long you've been on uh, social media. But I find that to be helpful too, because it keeps me accountable right there, you know, as I log in. So sometimes I'll just make that a habit of checking that. Um, so there's a ways, there's ways of going about it for sure. I was just thinking about, <laughs> it's kind of scary, but I think I joined Facebook in 2004, which it's crazy that that's 19 years ago. That's insane. Yeah. Whenever um, I got, it was a college, you had to have a college account or something, right? College email. It was yeah. the only way you could get it. Yeah. Those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Someone asked, I don't have any social media. Where should I start? Is there one in particular that I should prioritize? It pains me to say this, it does, but I do use Twitter or X uh, for news just to see what's happening and to see what's kind of breaking. So I find that to be one of the ones I check um, for business, but also just to keep myself apprised of what's going on in the news cycle. Uh, so that one I find to be helpful for me, I think for businesses that I work with and for people who are branding uh, LinkedIn and Facebook are helpful for messaging. Um, and Instagram is more, as you kind of laid out is more personable and shows a little bit of your personality, your character, um, then, you know, kind of nice photos to share, but I, I would probably get Twitter and then probably LinkedIn if I had to be honest. Yeah. It's, I know in some of the research that we've done for country first, that it, it does depend on figuring out also the audience you're trying to attract because um, baby boomers, um, Gen X, more likely to be on Facebook. If your strategy for getting elected really relies on a lot of young people, then you may need to be focused on some of the platforms that we didn't even necessarily talk about and, you know, short form videos, things of that nature. But it's, it's important to be thinking about that very question you asked, um, as part of your, when you're thinking about what your strategy would be and who you try to attract. Okay, um, we have a question from Jacob in the Q&A. What are your thoughts on the pacing of messages on social media? Does the right frequency of posts change based on which platform I'm on? Certainly, I think you don't need to be, and you, you touched on this during the presentation, you don't need to be tweeting or posting or sharing every hour, but I think a, you know, I would say at least once a day, make sure you're either retweeting, make sure you're liking comments or liking uh, posts, be engaged on social media. Um, but the scheduling feature on, I think, all the platforms now really does make it easy. So if you know you have a post you want to put up for, whether it's a holiday or let's say things like that, you can schedule them out a little bit so you're not missing anything. But I do think, uh, again, it depends on the platform, depends on what message and audience. But I think once a day is is pretty uh, standard. Yeah. Someone is asking your, for your thoughts on threads. The threads I'm still trying to figure out. I'll be honest. Um, it's, you know, Instagram meets Twitter. Um, and it's, it sort of hasn't really figured out its own identity as a platform yet. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure where I stand yet. So so, t you know, TB, TBD. <laughs> um, so, Maura, are there, can you think of any examples from your time doing campaign um, 
comms where where something seemed like a, a real emergency or was or was a real big deal, but then you know it in the moment it seemed crazy, but but then it wasn't really in the grand scheme of things because I think that that can be what's overwhelming for a lot of new candidates with social media is that everything feels like an emergency or a house fire. How would, how would you advise people when those things inevitably happen? So I think one example I have is that, you know, people, you're not going to make everyone happy that out there, right? There's always going to be naysayers no matter what you're doing, because you're putting, again, it's really courageous to put yourself out there on any of these platforms and speak your mind and share what your beliefs are. So you have to just one get over the fact that you're not going to make everyone happy, but you also don't need to respond to everyone. And I say that roles and, and things that are negative, you don't need to respond to it. I think if it's an in-person conversation, you're, you can certainly be willing to have a conversation and hear that person out. But most time you have armchair activists that are going to leave comments just because it's behind a computer screen. And I know that we've had a situation where somebody created a blog post masked as a news article that really wasn't and it got you know some trolls that started retweeting it and and people on the team were so worried that it was going to gain traction and started panic and i said just let it sit um just just let it lie for tonight you know we don't need to respond right now let's see how we feel in the morning <laughs> and just trying to keep everyone calm for the evening let's just sleep on it <laughs> and you know in the morning it was a non-issue it didn't get picked up by any actual uh respected or even you know real media outlets so it was a non-story a non a non-issue that in the moment was causing quite the panic on the team but uh turned out to be you know nothing uh, so it's you know it, you don't need to respond to every negativity negative comment but also just have a little patience and something else to touch on was have a little grace uh but give yourself grace you don't need to respond to everything yeah. So if you find that there are people in social media that, you know, that, you know, aren't a troll, let's say you, you know who they are, you know, they're a real person, um, but they, but they just continue to be kind of a thorn in the side or, you know, just distracting. Would you advise like blocking them? Would you advise like trying to reach out to them and having a conversation to try to defuse it? What, what would you do in something like that? If you're, in a race that's, you know, more like a school board or, you know, uh, a, a county ca- a county board or something that's not like a, a huge congressional district. I think if I had someone on my team who could get in touch with that person and maybe set up a call or a conversation, if they'd be willing to have that, that might be something to do. Um, or, you know, you can send them a message online and just say, I've seen your frustrations. I've seen your concerns. Are, are you interested in having a dialogue? Are you interested in having a conversation? Um, but you also need to be real, realistic in that they may just want to be complaining just to complain and that they may not stop. Um, if they ever use derogatory language or um, uh, foul language, you, you're certainly welcome to block them. I think that that's, to me, you have to have a line in the sand where you have to, you know, you want to keep a forum open but you want to keep it respectful. And if someone's violating that, then, you know, you have every right to, um, to mute. And what I would do is mute them. Yeah. Um, someone is asking who is your favorite or maybe a more than one favorite political personality to follow. Um, like if someone's looking for an example of 
someone to model themselves after? I mean, obviously we talked about the need to be authentic, to be yourself, but is there anyone that you think is really just like hitting it out of the park in that respect? Um, big fan of Larry Hogan. Really enjoy him. Uh, you know, Chris Christie is being himself and he doesn't have much to lose. So it's a little easier to do that when you have lose. So it's a little bit different in that regards. Uh, I think, you know, there are, um, what's his name? Jeff. Uh, he's from Jackson. Yes. I really enjoy him. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Really enjoy him. And he's, you know, what's interesting about him is he's utilizing uh, those short form videos where he responds to questions. And that also might be a way of handling certain things too. You can respond in video form uh, and just kind of take back the narrative in situations that maybe you feel like a written post can't capture. So I do think that utilizing that YouTube is a great place to, to uh, post them as well. So you get a couple of different uh, bites of the apple and uh, yeah. So I think he's, he's a good one to watch as well. Um, I'm trying to think who else, but, but yeah. Yeah. I would definitely follow Jeff Jackson, regardless of whether, you know, you're a Republican. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I will. I'm saying to the audience, I would definitely fo recommend following him on Instagram because he is very, very good at breaking issues down um, in a compelling way that you may not agree with him, but it's hard to disagree with how he is trying to inform people and, you know, make them, um, make them feel plugged in as um, a representative. So, mm -hmm. um, well, I'm, I believe we've gotten through our questions tonight. So Maura, I really want to thank you for being here with us and for sharing your expertise. So thank you everyone. Thank you, Maura, and have a great night. Straightening up my room, tidying up. And let's see into this. Session for fundraising strategy. This is where I would want to just use a GoFundMe. And uh, I wouldn't want to do campaign the whole fucking asking people for money. It's bullshit. And to be beholden, I've always considered that a form of institutionalized bribery. But I need to ask him about, okay, is it okay if I just do fundraising through um, GoFundMe? And, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't believe in fund in, in uh, mixing money with politics, actually. I'm against that. I think it should be banned. I think money contribution should be banned from politics. That's just me. I definitely don't want to ask anybody for money. I might owe them something, don't I? Fundraising strategy, navigate, oh. Uh, right. Country First Academy, Understanding Campaign Finance, Engaging a Fundraising Professional. Oh, great. Building a Fundraising Strategy. This sounds shitty. Engaging Donors and Volunteers. Analyzing and Adapting. So this sounds like, uh, you know, you want to turn this into a business. And what, are the, what do they do with these campaign donations anyway? 
fucking pocket them, man. <laughs> That's what it seems like to me. It's like Ron DeSantis got... He had a hundred million dollars in a super PAC and more, many more millions of dollars. Um, and uh, what for? Um, what he spend it on going to like another country and. What the hell did he spend it on? <laughs> Bless you. Okay. Anyway. Go, man. Hey everyone, welcome to our training session on political campaign fundraising strategies. We're not here to waste any time, so let's get right to the point. And we'll start with why are we all here? Mm. Campaigns run on ideas, sure, but they also run on money. Like it or not, you'll need funds to get your message out, to rally volunteers, to host events, and yes, even to keep the lights on at campaign headquarters. Simply put, if you want your campaign to succeed, you've got to understand the financial side of things and take it very seriously. So what can you expect from these training videos? We've got a lot to cover, and we'll start by demystifying campaign finance laws. Those are the rules that tell you what you can and can't do with campaign money. Then we'll dive into identifying sources of funding and how to set realistic financial goals for your campaign. And after that, we'll talk about building your very own fundraising dream team. How do you find the right people to help you raise money? And what are the various channels you can use to actually collect donations? You'll also learn about maintaining a strong relationship with your donors, which is absolutely key to any successful campaign. But that's not all. Ever wonder about the role of a fundraising professional, otherwise known as a back. fundraiser? Well, we'll tell you when to bring one into the picture and how they can take your fundraising efforts to the back. next level. Finally, we'll wrap up with how to evaluate your fundraising tactics, making sure they're effective, above board, and ethical. So by the end, our goal is for you to walk away with a solid understanding of how campaign finance and campaign fundraising works, even if you don't have all the details sorted out right now. You'll have the tools you need to set up a fundraising strategy that aligns with your campaign goals, and you'll know how to keep it on the right track. And best of all, if you have any questions following any of these individual sessions, you can reach out to us at hello at countryfirstacademy.org, and a member of our team will get back to you soon with an answer or pointing you in the right direction. All right, let's dig into some nuts and bolts to help us understand campaign finance. So the first thing we need to talk about is campaign finance laws and regulations. Now, trust me, this is one area where you don't want to make mistakes. First, because penalties can be harsh. And second, let's be real. You don't want to be known or to be making news 
from mishandling funds or breaking the rules. You want to be making headlines for your ideas, for your candidacy, for positive things. And the distraction of campaign finance rule violations is just not a good look. So we've got to take these very seriously. First things first, you've got to know your limits. Every state, every election has its own rules about how much an individual, corporation, or PAC can contribute to a campaign. You've got to know these numbers like the back of your hand and your team, particularly anyone working on fundraising matters, needs to know these numbers like the back of their hand. Some places have very strict restrictions with stiff penalties, and others are like the Wild West and it seems like you can get away with just about anything. You don't want to assume anything, especially because the rules can vary greatly by municipality, even in the same state. So make sure you know the limits that apply to you. Next up, where's the money coming from? Here are some typical sources. There are individual donors. That's people like you and me and your neighbor, anyone who wants to chip into your campaign. There are also political action committees. You may have heard these referred to as PACs before. They're like interest groups that have money to support specific issues or candidates. There's the self-funding route. If you've got the personal means, uh, you can invest in your own campaign, but there could be limits on this as well. And oftentimes we advise to um, think about how much you want to invest because it could send the wrong signal in the media or to other donors. There's also public funding. Some states offer public funding options, but there are usually strings attached like spending limits. So you really want to be aware of the ramifications of accepting public funds if they're available before doing so. Okay, so now let's say you've identified where you'll get your money. What do you do with it? Well, we need to make a budget. And I don't mean a rough idea jotted down on a napkin. I mean a full online item budget that accounts for everything, even $2 bumper stickers, because a $2 bumper sticker isn't just a $2 bumper sticker. It usually is an inventory of bumper stickers. It includes the shipping. It includes all sorts of expenses. So it's important to have everything on paper or in Excel. <laughs> so you're going to start with the basics. Expenses like marketing and research, like ads, flyers, social media campaigns. You're going to be thinking about the expense of staffing because you'll likely need help even if it's just part-time. It's difficult for a campaign to operate solely on volunteers. It can happen, but it's getting less and less common. Now, there are events. Events carry expenses, too. Events like rallies, meet and greets, they all are going to cost something. There's also office space. Unless you plan to run the campaign out of your garage, you'll need a place for your team to meet. And there's always going to be miscellaneous expenses, trust me. You know, if you've owned a house or invested in anything that requires maintenance, you know that it's never just what you think it's going to cost. You've got to put in a cushion. So you've got your budget. What's the next step? The next step is goals. What are you aiming to achieve financially? Let's start with a fundraising target that's both ambitious and realistic. But don't just pull a number out of thin air. Base it on your budget and what you realistically think you can raise. And it's also good to break it down by short-term, medium-term, and long-term goals. 
Now, a short-term goal could be if you want to raise a certain amount of money per week or per month, or maybe you're doing a special campaign drive on a particular topic and you're really trying to get to a certain number. A midterm goal would be more like a quarterly goal, and this often works well because a lot of reporting for campaign finance laws requires in many places for people to report quarterly on both um, the income for the campaign and the expenses for the campaign. So medium-term goals are often um, related to quarters. And then long-term goals, these are your ultimate fundraising target, um, what you need to raise for everything in the campaign to work. So remember, goals are not set in stone. You'll need to revisit and possibly revise them as you go along. And maybe you're going to hit a fundraising gold mine and can aim higher. Or maybe you're going to fall short and you need to scale back your plans. That's okay. The key is to stay flexible yet focused. All right, that's it for this section. Uh, up next is building a team and strategy to make all this financial magic happen. All right, we'll talk next about engaging a fundraising professional. All right, let's get real for a second. Sometimes you've got to admit when you're out of your depth. You might be great at giving speeches or knocking on doors, but when it comes to the ins and outs of fundraising, you might need a pro. So when should you consider bringing one on board? Simple. When you realize that fundraising isn't just a side gig, it's a full-time job that needs expertise. So you've concluded you need a professional. How do you find one? Three words. Research interview, and reference. Look for people who have experience in political fundraising, not just charity galas or bake sales. Set up interviews to gauge if they understand your cause and your community. And don't skip checking references. Talk to other campaigns they've worked for. And a good start um, or a good fit can make or break your fundraising efforts. So once you've found your fundraising wizard, what's next? Make them part of the team. This isn't a hire and forget it kind of deal. Fundraising is essentially sales. Your fundraising professional needs to understand you, your vision, your goals, and your beliefs forward and backward to most effectively market those qualities to folks who want to invest in that type of leadership and ideas. That means they need to be involved in campaign meetings, be familiar with you and your key messages, and have a mechanism to report feedback they're receiving from donors and prospects. They're not just a money-raising machine. They're a strategic partner. Last but not least, lay down the law. Kindly, of course. Make sure both sides know what's expected. Are they handling just big-ticket donors or also managing online fundraising? How often will they update you? How will they represent your campaign to potential donors? How will they be compensated for their services? Be clear on all these fronts. A pro fundraiser isn't a magic wand, but they can be the next best thing. If you bring them into the fold correctly, they can help you hit financial goals you didn't even dare to dream. Just remember, you're the campaign, they're the fuel. All right, let's jump into what's probably the core of your campaign's financial engine, your fundraising team, and strategy. Yep, it's a team sport, and like any sport, you need a solid game plan. First up, your fundraising team. 
This isn't just your cousin or your next door neighbor, although they might be great. Don't count them out. But you do want a mix of skills. Some folks are great at organizing events. Some are wizards on social media. Some are good at hitting the phones. And remember that professional we talked about earlier, they're the quarterback of the team. So now let's get on to a game plan. We're talking about a multi-channel approach here. Basically, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. You're going to have traditional events. Yes, good old-fashioned events still work. Think dinners, auctions, barbecues. They're not just about the money. They're also about building a community around your campaign. So even though they can be time-consuming, they're worth it for the connections that you can make. There's also digital and social media fundraising. And if you're not asking for donations on Facebook, Twitter, and through email, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. That's just the 21st century reality. But a word of caution, don't just spam people. Make it personal. Make it urgent. And for heaven's sake, make it easy to click and donate. I'm sure all of us have been on the other end of a link where we were trying to buy something, give something, do whatever, and it's almost impossible to do it. And you get frustrated, you give up, and that organization suffers as a result. You don't want that to be your campaign. There are also great peer-to-peer strategies, and this is where your enthusiastic supporters become mini-fundraisers themselves with mini-goals or maybe even larger goals. They reach out to their networks and ask for donations on your behalf. It's like multiplying your fundraising team without the hassle of managing more people. Now let's talk about the message. You're not just asking people to give you money. You're asking them to invest in a vision. What's your story? Why should people care? There's the old adage from sales that facts tell and stories sell. Take some time to craft a message that pulls at the heartstrings or revs up the engine. If people are moved by your story, they'll be much more likely to open their wallets and invest in you and your candidacy. To sum it up, build a diverse team and use every tool in your toolbox, events, digital platforms, and personal networks. And don't forget, make sure your message sings. Do all this right and you won't just hit your fundraising goals, you'll smash them. All right, now it's time to talk about engaging the people who will help fund your campaign. Now, I'm not talking about Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy, but real-life people and organizations who will back your vision. How do you find them, keep them engaged, and get them to pitch in? Well, you've got to identify and target your potential donors. So you want to find donors. First off, look close to home. Friends, family, colleagues, these are the folks that already know you and might support your cause. Then widen your net. Go to community events. Network with like-minded people. Also, don't overlook databases and donor lists. They're gold mines that can point you to people who've donated to similar causes. And here's a tip. Not every donor is created equal. Some can give more, and some can give again and again. Identify who's who, and categorize your donors by, you know, they're a small dollar donor, medium. Either right, we're listening to Country First Academy, about fundraising. This is Fundraising Strategy Webinar, Part 4.
Uh, navigating the political landscape. No. But you do want a mix of skills. Some folks are great at organizing events. Some are wizards on social media. Some are good at hitting the phones. And remember that professional we talked about earlier, they're the quarterback of the team. So now let's get on to a game plan. We're talking about a multi-channel approach here. Basically, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. You're going to have traditional events. Yes, good old-fashioned events still work. Think dinners, auctions, barbecues. They're not just about the money, they're also about building a community around your campaign. So even though they can be time-consuming, they're worth it for the connections that you can make. There's also digital and social media fundraising. And if you're not asking for donations on Facebook, Twitter, and through email, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. That's just the 21st century reality. But a word of caution, don't just spam people. Make it personal, make it urgent, and for heaven's sake, make it easy to click and donate. I'm sure all of us have been on the other end of a link where we were trying to buy something, give something, do whatever, and it's almost impossible to do it. And you get frustrated, you give up, and that organization suffers as a result. You don't want that to be your campaign. There are also great peer-to-peer -peer strategies, and this is where your enthusiastic supporters become mini fundraisers themselves with mini goals or maybe even larger goals. They reach out to their networks and ask for donations on your behalf. It's like multiplying your fundraising team without the hassle of managing more people. Now let's talk about the message. You're not just asking people to give you money. You're asking them to invest in a vision. What's your story? Why should people care? There's the old adage from sales that facts tell and stories sell. Take some time to craft a message that pulls at the heartstrings or revs up the engine. If people are moved by your story, they'll be much more likely to open their wallets and invest in you and your candidacy. To sum it up, build a diverse team and use every tool in your toolbox, events, digital platforms, and personal networks. And don't forget, make sure your message sings. Do all this right, and you won't just hit your fundraising goals, you'll smash them. All right, now it's time to talk about engaging the people who will help fund your campaign. Now, I'm not talking about Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy, but real-life people and organizations who will back your vision. How do you find them, keep them engaged, and get them to pitch in? Well, you've got to identify and target your potential donors. So you want to find donors. First off, look close to home. Friends, family, colleagues, these are the folks that already know you and might support your cause. Then widen your net. Go to community events. Network with like-minded people. Also, don't overlook databases and donor lists. They're gold mines that can point you to people who've donated to similar causes. And here's a tip, not every donor is created equal. Some can give more and some can give again and again. Identify who's who and categorize your donors by, you know, they're a small dollar donor, medium size, or a large dollar donor. No, it's not a pizza order, it's a strategy. And you're gonna to wanna to build relationships and maintain engagement. 
So once you've got potential donors in your sites, you've got to keep them interested. And how do you do that? You have to talk to them. But don't make it all about the money. Share updates on your campaign, your milestones. Make them feel they're part of something bigger. If you only reach out to ask for cash, they'll start running the other way. And remember, it's not just about what they can give you, it's about what you can give them. Maybe it's a sense of community, maybe it's exclusive updates, or maybe it's a simple heartfelt thank you note. Keep the relation warm and they'll stick around. So we also want to talk about how to utilize volunteers for your grassroots efforts. And when we talk about boots on the ground, we're talking about your volunteer, the shoe leather that they're using, either out on a sidewalk going door to door, or even in this case, grassroots engagement can include phone calls, writing postcards, anything where they're actively volunteering for you. These folks are gold when it comes to grassroots. Why? Because nothing beats personal connections. When a volunteer asks their friend or neighbor to donate, it's a whole different ball game than when a stranger does it. So here's how you can leverage this army of volunteers to chip in to helping you with fundraising as well. First, you've got to train them. Make sure they know the basics of your campaign and how to make the ask. You'll want to provide them with materials like flyers, talking points, even a script for phone calls. And then you're going to want to do some targeting. Use your volunteers where they're most effective. If you have a college student who wants to volunteer, maybe they can help work at their campus to help your campaign. If you have a retiree, maybe they have connections in community groups that are aimed more toward more senior members of the population. So there you have it. Your donors aren't just names on a list. They're your campaign's lifeline. Engage them, build relationships, and don't forget those volunteers. They're more powerful than you think. Next, we'll talk about analyzing and adapting as part of the fundraising strategy. All right, well, two very important aspects we're going to tackle right now that are a little less glamorous but are very crucial to fundraising, and that is keeping tabs on your money and making sure everything's on the up and up. So the first thing you need to do is monitor and evaluate your fundraising success. So you've been doing a lot of work, but is it paying off? Don't wait until election day to find out. Track your donations. Look for patterns. Are certain events bringing in big bucks? Is your email campaign a dud? You won't know unless you check. Set specific benchmarks so you can say, hey, we're doing great, or yikes, we need to switch gears. We need to do this differently. That is going to make a big difference as you are moving through your campaign. And if you don't do it, it's likely you'll be leaving a lot of money on the table. Next, you're going to want to adapt your strategies and messaging. So this is important because it gives you an opportunity to switch gears. You've got to be ready to adapt. Your initial game plan might be solid, but what if it's not working? Don't be stubborn. If it's a situation where the well is dry, you've got to stop digging there. Adjust your tactics and even your messaging if you have to. Just because you had a thought that a certain message would resonate, it doesn't mean it will. Listen to feedback and don't be afraid to tweak your approach. 
Now, it's also important to take a look at ethical considerations and transparency. Yes, the E word, ethics. Look, it's tempting to cut corners, especially when you're desperate for funds. But don't. Just don't. It's not just about following the law. It's about maintaining trust. Be transparent about where the money's going. If someone gives you a big donation, don't let that sway your policies or promises. Remember, you're running to represent everyone, not just the highest bidder. So keep tabs on your performance, be ready to switch things up, and for heaven's sakes, play it straight. Trust is hard to earn and easy to lose. And in a campaign, once it's gone, it's gone. And it's going to be very difficult to get it back. All right, we've covered a lot of ground today. And I just want to reel it back in and go over the high points. No fluff, just the stuff you need to remember. So let's take a look. Here is a summary of our key points. First, fundraising. It's a full-time job. It's not a side hustle. You've got to take it seriously. Next, you need to build a diverse team. Different people bring different skills to the table. Next, know the rules. Campaign finance isn't a free-for-all. You've got to stay on the right side of the law or you are going to find yourself in big trouble. Next, you've got to take a multi-channel approach. Use everything you've got. Events, social media, peer-to-peer. There are lots of creative ways to fundraise. Try them all. Next, relationship building. Keep your donors engaged and make them part of your campaign story. Also, monitoring and adapting. You've got to keep an eye on the numbers. You've got to measure in order to manage. And be ready to pivot when the measurements you're seeing are not what they need to be. And finally, ethics. Play it straight. Don't compromise your integrity for a quick buck. Now, you're not alone in this. There are a ton of resources out there, and I'd like to start by having you read up on campaign finance laws in your state or municipality. Trust me, when it comes to this area, ignorance isn't bliss. It's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Also, there are plenty of software tools that can help you track donations, manage donor lists, and even coordinate volunteers. And don't forget to look at successful case studies. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Learn from people who've been there and done that, and even better if they've been there and done that close to home. As for next steps, it's all about action. Start building your team, begin those donor conversations, and lay down your strategy. You can't win a race if you're standing still, so let's get running. Right. <clears throat> okay, so that was part four. This is navigating the political landscape. Lesson five aims to empower participants with a toolkit to independently identify the political offices in their jurisdiction from local to federal and who holds them presently. Understand what those offices do. Locate the applicable calendars, deadlines, rules, and procedures for any election in a county or state. This includes advice on navigating election-related websites and other resources to independently gather information. You can either watch the complete webinar in one video or watch some parts by topic. Okay, lesson five. Navigating the political landscape. 
Hello and welcome. Hello and welcome to Country First Academy's lesson on navigating the political landscape. We're glad you're here because we know you must be curious and that you care. You want to make a difference and that's something to be proud of. And I'm thrilled to be part of this journey with you. By the end of this webinar, our goal is for you to have a personal toolkit for making sense of the options you have to run for political office. This isn't just another webinar where you sit back and listen. No, this is about rolling up your sleeves and getting to the heart of what it means to participate in our democracy. We're going to walk through the nuts and bolts of political offices and election rules. And I'm not talking about just throwing facts and figures at you. We're going to dive into what these roles really mean and how the rules of the game actually work. It's about connecting the dots between the people we elect and the rules they follow, or at least should follow. So let's talk about what we're aiming to do today. Our first goal is to help you become a bit of a detective in the political world. We want you to leave here able to spot and understand the different political offices up for grabs in elections. Now, it's not just about knowing who's running for what, it's understanding what these positions do, why they matter, and how they affect you and me. The second part is about demystifying the rule book, the election rules. If you've ever felt confused by how different each state or county can be with their election rules, you're not alone. We're going to break down these rules so you can make sense of them, no matter where you are. Think of it like learning the rules of a new board game. Once you know how to play, it gets a lot more interesting. As we step into this exploration, remember, this is about setting the stage for you to become more informed, engaged, and empowered in the political arena. Whether you're here as a future candidate, a supporter, or just as a citizen wanting to make better sense of it all, you're in the right place. So let's jump in and start unraveling the world of politics together. Now let's talk about the different kinds of elected positions that exist from your local town all the way up to the big seats in Washington, D.C. Now, I know this might sound like just a list of political offices, but stick with me. Understanding these roles is key to getting a grip on how decisions are made and how they affect us. First up, let's talk local which is the primary focus of Country First efforts. This is where the rubber meets the road. Local government is like your town or county steering wheel, controlling the immediate environment around you. Here, we're looking at roles like city council members, county board members, mayors, and even school board officials. These folks decide on local laws, school policies, and public services, things that directly touch our day-to-day -day lives. For instance, the school board decides on curricula and school policies. Remember when your school board decided to go for a new technology initiative, or when there was a debate on school zoning or library content or sports? That's them at work. Local government is hands-on, tangible, and incredibly impactful in the nitty-gritty of daily life. Moving up a level, we hit the state government. Think statewide elected officials like governors, along with district elected positions like state senators and representatives. These positions hold the reins on broader issues like state taxes, infrastructure projects, and statewide education policies. They're the bridge between local concerns and national policies. A great example here is state legislation on health care or highway maintenance. When the state government rolls out a new health care initiative or decides to revamp the highway system, it's these elected officials calling the shots. 
They have the power to shape the state's identity and policy direction, balancing local needs with statewide interests. And then we have the federal level. This is the big league, the president, Congress, which includes the House of Representatives and the Senate. These positions influence national and international policy. They deal with issues like national defense, foreign policy, federal taxes, and major federal laws. A classic example is passing a significant bill like health care reform or tax legislation. These decisions can have a ripple effect across the entire country and sometimes even beyond our borders. Federal officials are responsible for steering the country's overall direction and dealing with global matters. Now, there you have it. From your local council member to the president, each elected position plays a unique and critical role in shaping our society. Understanding who these people are and what they do is the first step in becoming an informed citizen and a more effective participant in our democracy. Remember, every level of government matters, and each has a direct impact on our lives in a different way. Now that we've got a good grasp of the different elected positions, let's talk about how you can actually find out who's filling these roles and what they're up to. This is about giving you the tools to become a bit of a political detective in your own community. We're going to cover three main strategies, using government websites, engaging with political local organizations, and leveraging public libraries. So let's jump in. First up, state and local government websites. These sites are like your official roadmap to who's who in your government. They can seem a bit overwhelming at first, but once you know where to look, they're incredibly useful. Start with what's often called something like the elected officials section. This is where you'll find a list of everyone from your mayor to your city council members. It's like a who's who of your local government. Next, check the election section of the website, which will very likely list the positions up for election, election calendars, campaign finance, and ethics rules. This is super important. It tells you when the next elections are, which aren't always when the big national elections unfold, what positions are up for grabs, and sometimes even who's running. And don't overlook any section of the web page that might include district maps. These maps show you which areas each official represents. It's really helpful for understanding who's making decisions on your behalf. Spend some time clicking around these sites. It might take a bit of digging, but the information you'll uncover is gold. Now, unfortunately, not all county or state websites are created equal. Some are fantastic resources and some leave a lot to be desired. But no matter what, from our experience, at minimum, you'll have a great starting point. Moving on, let's talk about engaging with local political organizations. This is about getting out there and connecting with the groups that are actively involved in politics in your area. We're talking local chapters of political parties, advocacy groups with which you identify, and civic organizations. Reach out to them, attend a meeting or an event. These groups often hold candidate forums, debates, and information sessions especially around election time. They can provide you with a wealth of first-hand information about who's running for office, their platforms, and what they stand for. It's also a great way to meet people who are passionate about the same issues as you. Networking with these groups can open up a lot of doors, whether you're looking to support a campaign, advocate for a cause, or even run for office yourself someday. Last but not least, let's talk about leveraging public libraries. Libraries are hidden gems when it comes to political research. They're not just about books. They're cultural hubs brimming with resources. Don't forget to tap into the knowledge of librarians, 
They're like professional treasure hunters and can guide you to exactly what you're looking for. So next time you're in the library, don't hesitate to ask for help with your political research. In conclusion, becoming well-versed in political offices, the people who hold them, and how to win them yourself, it's all about knowing where to look, whether it's navigating government websites, engaging with local political organizations, or making the most of your public library. You've got a variety of tools at your disposal. Use them, explore them, and become an informed citizen in your community. Remember, knowledge is power, especially when it comes to understanding the political world around you. Next up, we'll engage in a interactive exercise to help you navigate these websites. Next, we're going to talk about navigating web resources. So what I've done is I have picked three counties from across the country, Kent County in Michigan, Maricopa County in Arizona, and Rock County in Wisconsin as just three exemplars of the types of sites you may run into when you're doing research both on who's holding certain offices, what offices are available, but also information for candidates considering a run and where to find all of the rules, ethics, campaign finance, dates, calendars, etc. So let's get started. Alright, so what I've done here is I have um, the Kent County website. This is where um, Grand Rapids, Michigan is. And one thing I wanted to point out is that when you come to the Kent County website, the first place that I would look if I was looking to see what offices um, are elected, who's holding them, is I would try to find something that looks like it's going to have departments or officials. And this is very aptly named. Um, so when you look here, you see the officials. There are Board of Commissioners, County Administrator, this is probably not elected, um, a County Clerk, probably elected, um, Register of Deeds, Sheriff, Treasurer, a lot of these are going to be elected positions. You can click on any of these and get more information about those offices and the people who presently hold them. In Maricopa, it's very similar. You can go to um, different sections to see the services. Um, and if, when you go to departments, this is where you can see um, a lot of the different um, departments, including boards and commissions, the board, uh, board of supervisors, board of boards and commissions, um, and many other areas that would be um, elected positions. Now, this is not quite as clear the way this is organized, which of these are elected, which of them are appointed or hired as employees. Um, but one thing that you have here that we'll be clicking on a little later that will include more of that information is this election section. Going to Wisconsin, we are in Rock County, home of Janesville, Wisconsin. And again, you're going to see that departments and government are here. Um, so for government, you're going to see that there is the um, Board of Supervisors. You're going to see different com committees, um, meeting calendars, things of that nature. When you go over to departments, you're going to see a few other um, elected offices, such as um, the clerk, sheriff's office, um, different areas here that are elected offices. But again, in this county, it appears that it's not as laid out as easily um, to find out elected officials right off the bat. So we will get more information about that when we navigate for the elections. All right, going back to Kent County, Michigan. 
Now, if I wanted to learn about the elections and what's available here, what I would do is go to departments and officials, and I would find elections, which is right here. That's going to take us to the page we're on. And what you're going to find is a lot of great information here. Um, this page and the staff who work in this office can be great resources for you to reach out and ask questions if you live in Kent County. Um, likewise, these officials for your own county can be very helpful also. What you're going to see is usually on these election pages, there's more information for people who are voting about how to participate, um, such as drop box locations, things of that nature. But there's usually going to be information about actually running for office. So, for instance, you can click here and you can find all of your elected officials from the president all the way down to your local county officials and even township officials. And this has a really great um, platform because there's even a way for you to put in your address and get a customized list. Um, so you'd really have a good idea of what offices are available for someone exactly where you live. Um, then you go and there's going to be this section here called Running for Office in Kent County, which they have a great um, website for this. And it shows the filing requirements for all of these different county um, and state offices. This is a really great resource. And you're going to just have a lot more information here. So many uh, county, um, county election websites are going to have some form of this information. If we go to Maricopa County, on their elections page, it's very similar. There's a voter dashboard, important election dates. Um, but then you can go on to, um, if you keep scrolling, Eventually, um, you're going to see all of the information about election calendars, news, facts. But then you go up to the top here, and there's a section for candidates. And what you can do is you can look at um, what's on your ballot, county ballot measures, and this section right here, running for office. You're also going to want to look at campaign finance and voting districts. But this section about running for office is going to be very helpful because in Maricopa County, they have an information for filing dates, candidate training, campaign finance, precinct committeemen. They really give you a lot of great information about what it takes to request your candidate packet, declare your candidacy, and form a committee. As you can see, this website is not identical at all to um, the Kent County, Michigan website. But you'll see that it does show you county offices um, and other offices like special district board members, um, things that you can do, FAQs. So it is different, but a lot of the information is going to be very similar. Likewise, back to Rock County, Wisconsin, you're going to see on their election webpage that it looks different also. It has election results, voter qualifications, a lot of things that are geared more toward people voting. But if you scroll down, what you're going to find is information for candidates. This is going to include forms that you would use to declare your candidacy uh, for different types of offices. There is different candidate packets depending on the type of office you're seeking. And then there's also these um, campaign finance rules and resources. Um, it's just a great resource. But as you'll see from this particular website, it doesn't have as robust 
a candidate uh, information section as some of the other counties. And that is where it can really be helpful to pick up the phone and contact the clerk who operates the elections in your county. If you live in a web, live in a county or jurisdiction where the website is not as robust with resources. So you can call or email that office and ask them specific questions and they may be able to point you to exactly what you need to do. So whether you are um, in Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, or any of the states in between, your county's gonna have a website, it's going to have an election section, and hopefully it's going to have really fantastic resources for you. And if it doesn't, then it's going to have the information you need to contact the office to get more information. All right, let's shift gears and jump into something that's crucial for anyone interested in politics, and that is election rules. Now, I know what you're thinking because it's kind of true. This is kind of dry, complicated, boring, it can be. But trust me, understanding these rules is like having a map in a maze. It makes navigating the complex world of politics a whole lot easier. So let's break it down together. First up, let's talk about who can run for office. Candidacy requirements. This is a who and what you need to be or do to get your name on the ballot. It's like the entry ticket to the political race. At the local level, these rules can be pretty straightforward. Be a resident, be a certain age, maybe a fee or a set number of signatures. You know, maybe one of those or all of those, who knows. But as we move up to state or federal levels, things get more intricate. Think age requirements, residency stipulations, and sometimes even specific qualifications. For instance, to be a U.S. Senator, you've got to be at least 30 years old, a U.S. citizen for nine years, and live in the state you want to represent. These rules ensure that candidates have a certain level of experience and connection to the area they wish to serve. Next, let's dive into the world of campaign finance laws. Now, this will be a shallow dive because this is the how of funding a political campaign. It's all about transparency and fairness, or at least that's the aim. Making sure everyone plays by the same financial rules. These laws govern how much money candidates can raise, how they can spend it, and importantly, how they need to report it. At the heart of this is the goal to prevent corruption and undue influence. For example, there are limits on how much individuals can donate to a campaign. We have a much more robust and deeper dive into this topic in our learning library here at Country First Academy. And you wanna check that out before you undertake any run for office um, to give you an even better primer into this very important area. Now let's talk about the nuts and bolts, the election procedures. These are the rules that govern how elections are actually conducted. It covers everything from how and when votes are cast to how they're counted and reported. Think about voter registration processes, absentee voting rules, and even the hours polling stations are open. These procedures are crucial because they ensure elections are fair and accessible. But here's the catch. They can differ wildly from one place to another. Some states have mail-in ballots, others stick to in-person voting, and some offer both. And let's not forget about early voting, another variation in the mix. The aim is always to make voting as fair and straightforward as possible, but the way that's achieved can look very different depending on where you are. In wrapping up, understanding election rules, from candidacy requirements to campaign finance laws, it's like learning the rules of a game. It helps you play more effectively and more strategically 
and most importantly, helps you understand the game being played around you. Whether you're planning to run for office, support a campaign, or simply cast an informed vote, knowing these rules is truly power. So keep these insights in your back pocket. They're your toolkit for making sense of the political arena and playing an active, informed role in our democracy. Now let's take a deeper dive into something that's super important for anyone interested in the nuts and bolts of politics, and that is navigating state-specific election information. Now it might sound a bit daunting, but trust me, once you know where to look and what to look for, it's like having a GPS for your political journey. So let's get started on how to find and understand this info. First, let's talk about state election office websites. These sites are like your command center for election-related info in your state. They're packed with details on everything from who's running for office to when and where you can vote. But how do you make sense of all this information? Let's break it down. Picture this. You're on your state's election website. Your first stop is the section on candidacy requirements. This is where you'll find out what it takes to run for different offices in your state. It could be age requirements, residency stimulations, even specific qualifications for certain roles, such as having to be an attorney to run for district attorney. Next, you'll want to check out filing deadlines. These are critical. Missing a filing deadline is like missing a flight. There is no going back. The door does not reopen once it's closed. These deadlines tell you when paperwork needs to be in for a candidate to be considered eligible. And it's not just about who can run. It's also about how you can vote. Look for sections on voter registration, absentee ballots, and early voting options. Remember, each state has its own set of rules, so what applies in one might not apply in another. Now, while these sites are incredibly useful, they can sometimes be a bit, well, bureaucratic, what might be a nice way to call it. But don't worry, with a bit of patience and some clicking around, you'll find a treasure trove of information. And remember what we mentioned in another module about seeking help from a local librarian if you are having trouble finding this information and may not feel ready yet to go straight to the election office. All right, moving on to non-governmental resources. These are your secret weapons in understanding state-specific election info. Websites like Ballot Ballotpedia are like encyclopedias for political junkies. They offer breakdowns of political offices, elections, and ballot measures, all in plain English. Another great resource is state-specific legal resources. These can be a bit more dense, but they offer a wealth of information, especially if you're interested in the nitty-gritty of election laws and precedents. And let's not forget about political advocacy groups. These organizations often have a wealth of knowledge about state-specific political landscapes. They can provide insights into ongoing campaigns, key issues at play, and even opportunities for you to get involved. Using these resources is like having a panel of experts at your fingertips. They can help you understand the broader context of what's happening in your state and give you a clearer picture of the political landscape. So there you have it. Whether you're navigating state election office websites or diving into non-government resources, you're now equipped with the know-how to find and interpret critical election information. Remember, being informed is the first step to being engaged, and you're well on your way. All right, as we wrap up our time together, let's do a quick recap of what we've covered. We started off by diving into the different types of elected positions, from your local council members who make decisions about your neighborhood parks, to the big players in federal government, shaping national policy. 
we saw how each level of government, local, state, and federal, plays a unique and essential role in our lives. Then we tackled the rules of the game, election rules. We talked about candidacy requirements, the ins and outs of campaign finance laws, and various procedures that govern how elections are conducted. Remember, these rules might seem overwhelming at first, but they're the roadmap to understanding and participating in the political process. We also explored how to navigate state-specific election information and county-specific election information online. We looked at how each state and county election website can be a goldmine of information. And we discovered the power of non-governmental resources like Ballotpedia and advocacy groups. These tools aren't just useful, they're crucial for staying informed and engaged. Now I want to encourage you all to keep the momentum going. Politics isn't just about showing up at the polls every couple of years. It's an ongoing process of learning, engaging, and participating. Stay curious. Keep exploring those state election websites. Dive into resources like Ballotpedia, and maybe even get involved with local political organizations if you aren't already. Every bit of knowledge and every action, no matter how small, adds up to a more informed and vibrant democracy. And don't forget, the skills you've learned today are not just for understanding elections, they're tools for life in a democratic society. They'll help you make informed decisions, engage in meaningful conversations, and maybe even inspire you to take up a role in the political process yourself. Whether that's running for office, supporting a campaign, or simply being a more informed voter, you have the power to make a difference. Before we part ways, I want to leave you with this thought. Informed political participation is the cornerstone of our democracy. It's what makes the whole thing work. By taking the time to understand the roles of elected officials, the rules of the game, and how to navigate the wealth of information out there, you're not just bettering yourself, you're strengthening the fabric of our society. And that's not just hyperbole. So go out there, use these skills, stay informed, and engage with the political process. Your voice matters. Your actions count, and your involvement shapes the future. So remember, democracy isn't a spectator sport. It requires all of us to get in the game. Right. Shit. <clears throat> Doing a uh, little, little cards. Okay, lesson, what is it, dedicated five lesson plays with the members for lesson videos. Okay, so that's it for now.